Well, good morning, everyone. If you will, please turn to Psalm 127. I've been uh, thinking recently about sleep. You know, sleep's one of those things, right? It's like a, a biological necessity, right? God wired us to sleep. I mean, a third of our life is wasted sleeping. Uh, this past Friday, it was my son's birthday, and, you know, with all the, you know, no birthday parties, no big celebrations, it's, it's hard to do that in this season. The thing that he really wanted was a slumber party at the church office. So that's what he got. So though I'm wired to sleep, though I love to sleep, I can promise you this, sometimes it's difficult to sleep, Right? I mean, you can have, like, the highest thread count sheets. Still not sleep, right? If you're into this, you could take those essential oils, that that lavender goop or whatever it is, right? You could sprinkle it over the pillow. Still not sleep. You you can get a white noise machine, blackout curtains. You, You can have one of those mattresses that, like, perfectly conforms to your body. Still not sleep. You could wake up in the morning, check your Fitbit, and it says you slept eight hours, but you're still tired. Now, one of the reasons why it's hard to sleep, or it can be hard to sleep, is because all of us are sort of chronically anxious. We're anxious about maybe what people might think of us, or how we might be perceived. We're anxious about what we look like. We're anxious about that test or that report that the deadline is getting closer and closer to. We're anxious about that pain in our chest that just won't go away, right? I mean, come on, we're all closet hypochondriacs. WebMD made that possible. We have all these sorts of anxieties that just kind of come upon us. And if you just look at this past year, more worries. Worry upon worry upon worry. I mean, just this past night, last night, I went to bed and I was like psyching myself up going, okay, it's New Year's. I mean, it's daylight saving time. Like I get an hour less of sleep. Okay, what if I, what if I don't wake up? What if all of a sudden I just like wake up and it's like 10 a.m. or something? Ludicrous, and yet I couldn't sleep because I was worried about maybe I wouldn't wake up. We're all anxious. We all experience anxiety and worry. It's, it's pretty common, isn't it? And then if you ever had those conversations with that person, right? That, that person who just isn't anxious, who just isn't worried, aren't they annoying? You want to, like, communicate, like, hey, do you know what's going on in the world? Like, there are things to worry about. And yet their peace, their sort of serenity, their joy, you want it, but you're kind of annoyed by it. At least I am. You you want to just tell them there's a lot that they should be worrying about. There's a great Old Testament commentary on the Psalms written by William Plummer. And when he's discussing the psalm that we're going to look at, the song that I'm going to read in a moment, he asks this just thought-provoking question. 
This is the question that he asks. He says, how many millions sleep and wake up like atheists? How many sleep and wake up as if God didn't exist at all? Now, what William Plummer meant by asking this question is that if we were to sort of deconstruct our sleeping habits, if we were to dissect them and study our sleeping habits, it would communicate something theological, not just biological. Do you go to bed worried, thinking that your worry is going to protect you from tomorrow's problems? Do you go to bed worried, believing that by just staying up late or just thinking about it or just working harder or or doing some mental gymnastics, then everything is going to be okay tomorrow? You'll be more secure. Anxiety is pretty common, isn't it? But it might not have to be. This winter, we're studying a collection of psalms. They're called the Psalms of Ascent. And and these were, you could think of it sort of as a a pocket hymn book for pilgrims. They were psalms sung by pilgrims as they went to Jerusalem at various times throughout the year. And we've noticed that there's a diversity of psalms, aren't there? Just like there's a diversity of emotions that we all go through, just like there's a diversity of experiences that we engage with, there's a diversity of psalms to kind of meet us wherever we're at. Well, today we're going to look at Psalm 127. And this is a new one for us in this collection. It's a wisdom psalm. It's a psalm that's meant to make us wise. Wise in our worries. Wise in our anxiety. And like much of the wisdom literature that we find, lots of the wisdom we find in our Bibles, it's when you really look at it, when you really read it, when you really ponder and think about it, it's pretty countercultural. Right? Wisdom in the Bible is like truth standing on its head, calling for attention. Chesterton said that. I can't copyright that one. And so look, before I read it, look who wrote this psalm. Solomon, the great wise man. He wrote two psalms, Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. Now, we're going to talk about Solomon later, so put him in your back pocket. We're we're going to get to him later. But but notice that we're at the midpoint of our spiritual journey in the book, or in the Songs of Ascent. We're halfway through. We're at sort of the, the apex of the journey. And you're going to notice, before I read this, that it's a really ordinary psalm. It's really ordinary. There's nothing pretentious about this psalm. It it covers just the common things of life, right? Building homes, protecting cities, working hard, having a family. All areas, my guess is, that produce anxiety to one level in your life. We all need God's wisdom. And this psalm, it is that for us this morning. The the big idea this morning, and then we'll read the text, should be behind me. And it's this, that God gives rest to the beloved. Blessing to the beloved through the beloved. 
We're going to look at this in three parts. So if you will, turn with me to Psalm 127. A song of a sense of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This psalm, as I read it, if you noticed, and and some of your English translations point this out, it's divided into two stanzas. Verse 1 and 2, verse 3 and 5. And and sort of right out of the gate, we're urged by way of a conditional clause in verse 1, right? Unless the Lord builds, we all build in vain. Then sort of a refrain for a second time, another conditional. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So so we've got this double conditional clause urging us away from something. And and then we have this repeated word in the first two verses. Right? Repeated words, especially in this kind of condensed form, it's like calling for our attention. Vain, vain, vain. Did you see that in verse 1 and 2? Now, this should remind us of another book Solomon wrote, shouldn't it? Ecclesiastes. Do you remember how that started? Solomon starts the book of Ecclesiastes saying that vanity of vanity, all is vanity. A threefold vanity in Ecclesiastes and a threefold vanity in this psalm written by Solomon. Now, in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, as you know, Phil has pointed out on numerous occasions, basically what Solomon is saying is that the best, just the best that life can offer, apart from God, it's empty. It's a vapor. It's all vanity. But here in our psalm, it's, it's similar, but it's just kind of dialed, tuned a little bit different. The, the point's slightly different. And here, it's, it's that you can throw yourself into work. But if God's not working in and through you, it's all for naught. It's pointless. It's vain. Now, now l- l- let's look at these two spheres that Solomon gives to us. Right? And, and the first is building. Solomon writes that that it's vain to build a house without the Lord. Now, maybe Solomon's thinking about the house he built for the Lord, right? Or maybe he's thinking about the palace he built for himself. We read of that in 1 Kings. But but regardless, whatever the case is, the, the point is the same, isn't it, right? No structure. Either Solomon's house or even God's house. No structure. Even if you use the best materials, no structure apart from God is secure. But it's just not vanity to build without the Lord. It's also vain to guard or protect without the Lord, right? We see that again 
in verse 1. The, the, the image here is of a watchman, right? A watchman on the city gate or on the wall, just staring out on the horizon, you know, trying not to blink, just waiting for danger or any sign of danger. That, that, that was the point of the watchman. And, and Jerusalem, if you think about it in Solomon's day, Jerusalem needed a lot of protecting. I mean, just go back and read in 1 Kings chapter 10, right? The, Solomon was like bringing in millions, if not billions of, you know, gold and precious uh, stones. I mean, we're talking about just amassing wealth. They needed protecting. They didn't have ADT to do it for them. They did have watchmen. And so these, these watchmen in the Old Testament, they were state employees. They were like the police, right? They were meant to make citizens feel secure. So, so the watchman doesn't sleep so that the citizens can sleep. And what this is saying is that even if you have hundreds, thousands of watchmen doing their job faithfully, if God is not watching over the city, it's all in vain. Our security cannot be found in either the watchman or the builder, or you could put it in modern terms, in the economy or the military. Now, we know this to be true, right? 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 If God doesn't show up, nothing really matters. Right? You, you ever felt that sort of helplessness? Right? You're leading a small group, or you're discipling someone, you're reading a book, you're maybe sharing the gospel, or, or you're just kind of doing some pre-evangelism, you're just trying to connect with someone and try to figure out how to steer it to the gospel, and you're just like, okay, or, or you fumble and you, you, you talk about Jesus, and you're like, well, if, if you're not in this, it's just going to be falling on deaf ears. It's pointless. It's, it's vanity if God is not in these sorts of things. This is the world we live in. So, so what do we do in the midst of our vanity? Verse 2 tells us. Look at verse 2. We rise up early and we go to bed late. All right, if you're a night owl or you're a morning person, okay, I'm going to step on all y'all toes, all right? You're, you're all wrong. It doesn't matter if you, how early you wake up or how late you stay up. It's vanity if God's not in it. It's all vanity. But, but this is what we do, right? right? This is literally, in the, in the midst of the vanity, what do we do? We double down on work. We try to squeeze efficiency out of every waking moment. We, 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 we try to, you know, get schedulers and we, we, we get mentors to help us be more efficient because we just think if we just work more, work harder, work better, then well, then goodness is going to fall on us. Drink lots of coffee around here. Work longer hours. Sleep less. I mean, we don't even take all of our vacation time and we wear it like a badge of honor. The, the sort of image I get from this text is, is of a father who, who desperately wants, he's a good father, he, he wants to provide for his family, so he works harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. After all, the, the economies, especially in the Old Testament, right? The economy wasn't stable, right? It could go up and down depending upon the seasons. So, so he works harder and harder and harder knowing 
It's vain. Or, or it's like a mother, right? A mother sitting in her living room as her child is out past curfew, thinking that her worry is going to make her daughter or son more secure. Right? So she sits in the chair, stays up, just worrying, just thinking about what ditch her daughter is in, thinking that her worry can actually bring security to her children. But without God at the center, work and worry doesn't get us anywhere, right? It's like a rocking chair. It's fun to do for a little bit. doesn't get you anywhere. Actually, it's worse than that, right? Actually, all work like this and all worry does is actually increase the pain, right? It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. The word there, anxious toil, it comes up earlier in your Bibles. Really early in your Bibles. Genesis chapter 3, right? Right after the fall of Adam and Eve, the curses are announced, and God says, through painful toil, you will eat food from it all your days, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you. You see, work and worry, working harder and worrying more just increase the pain. They just magnify the anxiety. Becoming a workaholic doesn't solve anything. Becoming anxious, becoming a worry ward doesn't solve anything. It ultimately doesn't bring the security any of us need. In the end, all it does is just bring anxious toil. It's just a, a hamster wheel, isn't it? That is, unless God is at the center, right? Unless God's at work. There's a surprise in verse 2 at the very end, isn't there? Right? It sort of is stark and comes out of it. Because there are these sort of negative conditions like, if you do this, if you labor in vain, it's all, if, God, if you labor apart from God, it's all in vain, all in vain, all in vain. And then you get to the end of verse 2 and it says, for he gives to his beloved sleep. And you're thinking, where did that come from? Where does this rest come from? The word beloved, it's a pretty intimate word in your Bibles. It comes up often in the Old Testament. And one of the most frequent kind of condensed books where this comes is another book of Solomon's. It's not Ecclesiastes, right? It's not about the vain and utility of work. It's a song. It's Solomon. It's Solomon's book, The Song of Solomon, right? As the, as the two lovers call each other beloved, right? And so here, God is saying that, that as a man loves a woman, as a woman loves a man in that most deep, affectionate, most personal and intimate ways, so God loves his people, they are his beloved. And since they are his beloved, rest comes to them, even in the vanity of life. Some of you know the author Elizabeth Elliot. She was the, uh, the wife of Elizabeth, or sorry, of um, Jim Elliot, who was one of the Ecuadorian five who died sharing the gospel in Ecuador. And she once wrote something extremely provocative, I think, but when you step back, you go, oh, it's totally true. And it's this. It was a book about marriage, and she said that 
Love doesn't lead to marriage. Actually, it's the other way around. Marriage leads to love. And what she meant is that when, when you're dating, I mean, let, let's be honest with each other, right? When you're dating, there are parts of you that you don't let out, right? You wear your best outfits, always wear makeup, right? There's parts of your personality, things in your past that you're like, yeah, I'm protecting, I'm guarding. But it's in the safety of a covenantal relationship in marriage, that, that safety, that bond, that you can truly be yourself. You can truly let out those skeletons, right? You don't have to wear makeup every day or whatever. Only in the, the bond of marriage, that covenantal bond, is it safe to feel rest, to just be yourself. That's the idea here. That you can find rest in that sort of deep, intimate, covenantal relationship with God, knowing that he cares for you, that he loves you. That's where rest is found. And this morning, I want to ask, do you, do you know that rest? Do, do you know that rest within the bounds of an intimate, personal, covenantal relationship with God? Because that's where rest can be found. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, don't worry about your life, what, what you'll eat or drink, your body, what you will wear. And then he starts giving examples, and his point couldn't be more clear, right? He, he, you know, Jesus is basically saying, you are more beloved and precious than a daffodil. Rest in that. You are more precious and beloved than a sparrow. Rest in that. You know that sort of rest, the sort of rest that this psalm is holding out to you. It's a rest that's active. It's not passive. It's active. It's actively trusting in God. It's actively depending on God. It's actively saying, I'm going to bed having worked a hard day, saying, God, you can take care of tomorrow. It's the act of saying, okay, I'm going to sleep, but God, you're not going to sleep. It's the active dependence to say, whatever comes around the bend, whatever comes around next week, whatever hardship or suffering or trial that comes me, if I have you, I can rest. I can have peace. There's safety within the bonds of God's sovereign care. Now, let's look at the second stanza. Right? The first two verses is, is basically about building a house. It's about sort of work. And now we move from building a, a house to a household. Some people think this is like two psalms just squished together by some editor. But, but when you really think about it, oh, it makes perfect sense, right? Verse 1 and 2, it's about a house. Verse 3 through 5, a household. Pretty neat, huh? And as it relates to anxiety, I can think of nothing more worrisome, nothing that produces more anxiety in all of us than our children. Verse 3 starts with a word, behold. Now, when you read that in Hebrew, all of you should go, I got to stop, right? Because the author's saying, check this out, ponder this, slow down. I want you to think slowly, carefully, methodically about what I'm about to roll out. Behold, right? 
And what are we to behold? Something really ordinary, guys. A household. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Now, the word heritage, it's inheritance. Your children are an inheritance. Now, (laughs) we know how inheritances work, and it ain't work like this, right? Right? Inheritance work like this. Parents give an inheritance to children, and here it's the opposite. It says that children are an inheritance to parents. Interesting. And not only that, it says that, verse 3, they are the fruit of the womb, a reward. That word reward, it's, it's, it's about money. It's monetary. Children make you rich. You guys believe that? Right? I mean, in one sense, just experientially, I can tell you that having children and having a bunch of them is just the slow path towards financial ruin. But in God's economy, they make you rich. Maybe not in our economy, but in God's economy, children are your inheritance and they make you rich. They're your reward. Then verse 4. Children make you strong. Children are your weapons. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Arrows were like the common ammunition of the day. And look what these arrows do. Verse 5. He, that's the father, but, you know, mother, you could substitute that in as well. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. So, so, so the gate was like the courtroom, right? You, you would gather if you needed some sort of ruling, and so the elders would be there, so you'd go to the gate. If there was some tension or, You could think of it as sort of the the supreme court of a community. So here's this man, here's this father, maybe this mother, at the gate, enemies surrounded, and he's old, or she's old, and frail, and weak, maybe not as thinking as clearly as they once did. The enemies start verbally attacking, accusing. Who's got this father and mother's back? His children, right? The children are basically saying, you want to mess with my dad? You want to mess with my mom? You come through me. Children make us strong, right? I, I don't know your opinions on universal health care. I don't really care. But in some ways, God built in a universal health care system into the Bible. It's called children. That they're to make you rich, that they're to protect you as we become weaker, more vulnerable. Children are there to protect you, provide for you, encourage you, make you strong when you're feeling weak. This really is counterintuitive, isn't it? And then we get to verse 5, that first part that I skipped. It says that children make us Glad, blessed, or happy is the man who fills his quiver with them. Here, you want to know? You you think Jesus is the only one that does the Beatitudes? Here's an Old Testament Beatitude. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who has children. The result of children is happiness. It's a blessing. Do you know this, parents? 
me just address you for a moment. Do, do you know this blessing? I think at points we think it the opposite, right? Children are expensive. Children can be annoying. Children can be a burden. Children can cost you sleep. They throw up in the middle of the night and they have night terrors. I mean, it, not, not to mention the, the sort of emotional anxiety that we experience. I mean, if only children would just kind of give stretch marks or, uh, to, to, you know, to our bodies, ours, you know, your bodies, women. <laughs> if that was the only case, I mean, just think about the stretch marks they leave on our souls and our hearts as they break our hearts. Children are hard. But from God's perspective, children make us rich. They make us strong. They make us happy. They bless us. So, so if your house is filled with Legos, and if you've ever stepped on a Lego, it's probably the closest to cursing that you'll probably ever get. It's painful, and it takes hours to pick them up. Regardless of that reality, you are blessed. If the bills pile up, those, if your kids' student loans come to your door, and it feels like this is the slow death of your financial security, you nevertheless are blessed. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on the book of Psalms, and on this particular psalm, wrote this. Parents, this one's for you. Grandparents, uncles, this one's for you. He wrote, It is not untypical of God's gifts that first they are liabilities or at least responsibilities, before they become assets. And then he wrote this. The greater a child's promise, the greater a child's promise, the more likely they will be a handful before they are a quiverful. And some of us know the pain of that. Parents, be patient. Sometimes your children need to be a handful before they grow up to become a quiverful. But, but let me just say, if, if you don't have children, or you can't have children, or you haven't yet had any children, there's still an application for you in this text. God knows your pain. He knows. And he can make you strong in faith. He can make you rich in faith. He can make you strong in weakness. He can make you glad, happy, even in sorrow. You can be rich. You can be protected. You can be glad, even if you don't have children. Isn't that what the church is? There's a reason why we call the church the house of God. The church is filled with aunts and uncles, you know, moms and dads, maybe not biological moms and dads, but surrogate moms and dads. We're filled with aunts and uncles here at this church. You can find, you can find happiness, security, and riches, even if you don't have children.
Now, this psalm is far from over. Actually, I mean, not in time, but I'm just getting started because I left the good stuff for the end, all right? Sometimes we just stop here and think, oh, this is just about work and family, right? That's what this is about. Something really good is going on here, guys. We just got to slow down and see what's going on to really see it. I I told you to tuck Solomon in your back pocket. We're going to pull him out now. Right? Solomon wrote this psalm. But, but Solomon, he didn't really experience what this psalm was talking about. Right? He doesn't seem to be the blessed man talked about in verse 5. Solomon's building project of 1 Kings 9, it was reckless, to say the least. His kingdom, ruinous. His family, Jerry Springer, Right? A mess, an utter mess. And so in some sense, like much of Solomon's wisdom, we, we, could, we could just interpret it and say, well, well, it's relevant to us, but it was lost on him. I don't think so. I don't think that he's just warning us by his failed example. I think he's reminding us of an old promise. Solomon's father was David. And David was given a very particular promise back in 2 Samuel 7. David, remember, comes to God and they're talking and and basically David's like, I'm going to build you a house, God. And it turns out that David wouldn't build God a house. It would be his son, Solomon. And Solomon did just that very thing. He built a house to God. But even as beautiful and glorious as that house was, even as God's own glory filled that house, that temple, it was all in vain, wasn't it? Solomon's idolatry would undo much of his work. All of Solomon's hard work just ended in vanity, merely anxious toil. David said in 2 Samuel, I'm going to build you a house, but it's interesting that that's not the promise. Actually, the promise is God saying, I'm going to build you a household. A wordplay. David says, I'm going to build you a house, God. And God says, well, I'm going to build you a household. You see, the promise was something bigger, something greater than just building a house for God. It would be a household that would endure forever. That was the promise, the promise of a household. Actually, more particularly, the promise of children, but not children in general, children in particular. A child from David's own line that would rule and reign an everlasting kingdom. A child that would build a house of God through his own body, through his own life, death, and resurrection. A child, you might remember, was never anxious. Actually, when the the storms of life were raging around him, he would sleep in a boat. The promise of a child that would be an inheritance to the nations. That would make you rich, even though your sin made you poor. A child that would be your reward. A reward to all those who put their trust and faith in this son. A child that would be like an arrow against the flaming darts of God's enemies. This child would protect all those who would find refuge in his care. 
a, a child who would not just teach the Beatitudes. He was the incarnate Beatitude. He was the blessed one of the world. And then he passes on that blessing to us. You see, Solomon's not the only one who failed to put God at the center of their work and in their family. That describes all of us, doesn't it? One symptom of this, not the only symptom, but one symptom of this, are anxieties. But God would send his beloved, in whom a greater inheritance, far greater than any stimulus package, right? This inheritance can't rust. Yes, don't get me wrong. Children are a general inheritance. They are a blessing. They make you rich. But this child would make you filthy rich. Because this child would take your filthy rags brought about by your sin and exchange them by God's own righteousness. All of us, I think, stand at the gate, right? All of us in our sin stand at the gate guilty. And really, we've got no one to defend ourselves. That is unless a child comes. A child who is our advocate in the courtroom of heaven. We're called not to blame shift, to minimize our sin. No, all we do is wait for our backup. The ultimate child, Jesus Christ, who is our advocate when we stand at the city gate. That is the true inheritance of this psalm, the true riches of this psalm, the true protection of this psalm, the true blessing of this psalm. It is Jesus Christ. Worries come. Life is filled with things to worry about. But rest for the weary soul, it's held out to us. Why? Because we're the beloved. And two, because God sent the beloved. That's how we can have rest, even in the vanity of life. Let's pray. God, we, we know that if we seek to build anything, this church, our families, our work, our reputation, and you're not in it, it's all in vain. Lord, so we cast our dependence and our trust on you, knowing that it's hard. But God, we just want to go deeper into our relationship with you. We, we want to know of your love, We want to know of your comfort. We want to yoke ourselves to you. You have strong shoulders. You can carry all of our burdens, all of our worries, all our anxieties, whatever they may be. So we pray, Lord, that you would give us a deeper sense of ways this week to trust you and to cast our worries and anxiety on you. We pray this. In your son's beloved name, amen.